Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despised. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill, and make it 800. The master commended the honest man had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. 
and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were claimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Did you ever think that your mother had eyes in the back of her head? Somehow she was able to know things that happened, even if she wasn't facing you? Oftentimes, I have found that my kids did things that they think we never knew about. And I'm sure there are things that escaped discipline. But teens, we parents know a lot more than you give us credit for. My mother, who had those eyes in the back of her head and always seemed to know what I was doing, had a saying that I thought was just a quippy way of teaching a biblical principle. But I found out later that it is actually a direct quote from the Scriptures. I know a lot of you do your morning devotions in the book of Numbers. And so you've probably seen this many times. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. There are things that even if the eyes in the back of mother's head doesn't see, you can be sure your sin will eventually find you out. You may not get caught the first time or every time, but eventually the decisions of rebellion against God and authority that he has established will catch up to you. Today's lesson begins with a parable of a man who got caught with his hand in the proverbial cookie jar. Then Jesus applies that parable to some of the hidden sins of the Pharisees. 
indeed, their sins of mistreating God's people is found out. You can be sure it will be found out. The chapter actually starts with a parable in which a dishonest middleman comes clean. He had been playing both ends against the middle, and finally he got caught. Now, at, at first reading, this parable that is in front of us, I, it, when, when I first read I find a man who gets caught stealing from his boss. And then he steals from his boss two more times by cooking the books. But would a landowner ever commend an employee for stealing from him? So if a landowner would not commend someone for stealing from them, what does this mean that he was commended for being shrewd? See, the word shrewdness does not imply dishonesty. But rather, the actual word is to give careful thought about something. To think deeply or to consider, if this is the situation, what would be the wise thing to do? See, some people act on instinct and others act on reason. Some of you may be familiar with the Myers-Briggs temperament analysis. It's a tool that's used in business to, to evaluate personalities. And, and the, the four letters of your Myers-Briggs personality type is a result of eight options. Either you are introverted or extroverted, Either you sense what is happening or you act on intuition. Either you act upon your thoughts or your feelings. And finally, Myers-Briggs says some people just enjoy a lot of projects while other people enjoy completing projects. And I have done a few of the Myers-Briggs temperaments over time. And you may be surprised to know that I am an introverted person who senses rather than is intuitive. I think rather than feel. And I like it when the job is done rather than the messy process. So, because my bent is to look at the available data and then to make a reasoned response, I like shrewdness. And I would be commended if someone says, you're shrewd. You considered all of the data, you thought about it carefully, and you made a right choice. So with that idea of shrewdness for this property manager... See if this reading of the story makes sense to you while remaining faithful to the text as Jesus told it and Luke recorded it. There's a man by the name of landowner Larry. And Larry hires Roger to manage the ranch and the farmland. 
landowner Larry finds out that Roger has not been burning appropriately, so cedars are taking over the pasture. And he's been neglecting the creek and failing to dredge the ponds, so landowner Larry's land is becoming less valuable. And landowner Larry tells Roger, you need to move out of the manager's house. Now, Roger is not only lazy, but he's also greedy. Roger is so greedy that he go that he's been overcharging the tenants Tim and Tom who share crop the land that he managed for Larry. Well, since landowner Larry never deals directly with Tim and Tom, Larry doesn't know what deal has been struck. And and Larry doesn't know how inflated Roger has imposed on Tim and Tom. So what Roger does is he see, Roger goes to Tim and to Tom and he says, let's rewrite your contract in a way that will be fair for Larry, but will save you a lot of money. So Roger tells Tim, how much do you owe? And he says, um, I, I, I've got about a thousand barrels of olive oil that I owe to landowner Larry. And um, Roger says, I tell you what, why don't you take about um, $75,000 and just take that off the contract? You don't have to give it to me. You don't have to give it to Larry. Just the amount that you owe is now $75,000 less than it used to be. Then Roger goes over to Tom and says, uh, how much grain do you owe to Larry as, as the, the rent on your share crop? And Tom says, well, you know, about 2,000 bushels a week. And uh, Roger does some figuring and he says, well, I cut him a break for 75000 If I cut him a break for 75000 I tell you what. Rewrite the contract. You give Larry 80% of the wheat, and we'll call it good. So what has happened is, why did Tim reduce 50% and Tom only got a 20% reduction? Well, because both amounts were approximately a year's wages, $75,000. As a matter of fact, Craig Keener writes, the measure of olive oil was worth about 1,000 denarii. That's no small sum. And the measure of wheat was worth about 2,500 denarii. And so the percentage of debt forgiven was different, but roughly the same amount is forgiven in each sample, about 500 denarii. And if a denarius was one day's wages... Roger did not gain anything from restructuring the contracts. But he now has about $150,000 worth of favors that he can call in and draw upon when he loses his job. So now let's reconsider the names. 
if landowner Larry is the Lord and Roger represents the religious leaders, the Lord is saying it is commendable when the religious leaders stop extorting the people. Verse 9 is telling us that we should use our resources to be kind and to be merciful to the humans who bear God, the Lord's image. The reason Roger is commended is not because he's good at business, but because all of a sudden he starts to have compassion on the image bearers. See, the religious people had taken advantage of the people of God for generations. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, you've got to stop abusing God's people. And when he starts to act graciously and mercifully, then the Lord says, now you've got it. And so I believe the Lord is trying to commend us to stop and to think and to reason about how could I be gracious to other image bearers? How could I be merciful to other people that God loves? Because the world is passing away. And Jesus says, you've got to be mindful of the eternal. Don't worry about the money and the dollars and the cents. Think about those image bearers. Think about the eternal. What are you going to do for them? Then in verses 10 to 13, I see that there are definite prophets that measure out to those who have integrity. In verses 10, 11, and 12, we read that the person who has integrity gains greater influence. Now, this is not a one-for-one promise like the prosperity preachers who challenge you, sow a dollar and you'll reap ten in return. It's not that kind of a one-for-one deal, but it's a principle that those who are faithful will reap the rewards of faithfulness. The first prophet of integrity is a a greater influence, a greater impact. And then verse 13 warns of the divided heart. The reward of being integral is that you have a single-mindedness, and that single-mindedness is a pure heart, a single purpose, and undivided loyalties. If you're trying to dabble here and dabble there, then you're divided. But he says, when we love God first, primarily and only, we have a singleness of purpose. You know, I continue to be amazed when I consider our students here in Chase County who compete in three or four sports, plus being involved in the arts, plus excelling in academics. In my high school, few athletes were ever involved in the arts. And most of the athletes only chose one or maybe two sports. And then they devoted the off-season to preparation and training to excel during their limited season of competition. 
they, they had a commitment to one purpose that they pursued wholeheartedly. I had the privilege of watching the final varsity game of our Bulldog baseballers. Then less than 24 hours later, 24 hours later, many of those same students were in Wichita competing in the state track meet. I don't understand the level of devotion that they have to many sports, male and female both. But what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here is instead of pursuing so many different options, trying to be the valedictorian, trying to be all state at this, trying to be a record breaker in that, rather than trying all these different things, Jesus is saying there is a profit to being single-minded and single-focused. And then he says specifically, you can't serve both God and money. We get to the end here when it talks about God and money or God and mammon or God and wealth, depending upon your translation. And I've got to ask you today, who or what is your God? Is the God of the Bible the one that you bow down to as we sang about earlier? Or is wealth your God? Is comfort your God? Is popularity your God? Jesus says you cannot serve both God and wealth. ESV says money. Some of your Bibles say wealth. Some says mammon. Mammon is a transliteration of the word that means money. And I've told you before, that having wealth is not a sin. There are many people throughout the Bible and throughout church history who have been entrusted with significant resources. The problem is not when we have wealth. The problem is when wealth has us. Because you know what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You also know what Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can add Luke 16, 13 to the list of how to keep money in proper perspective. You cannot serve both God and wealth. See, the, these last six words of verse 13 expose a problem with Pharisee religion. It, it was nearly 23 years ago when our president told a grand jury, it depends upon what the meaning of the word is, is. Now, that is just one of what Time Magazine labeled the top 10 unfortunate political one-liners. And these 10 that were identified by Time Magazine only go back to 1929. But 
political hypocrisy goes back way before then. Because these religious leaders that Jesus was addressing had a hypocrisy problem of their own. And when Jesus told them, you can't serve both God and money, how do they respond? Well, they they were lovers of money, and they heard these things, and verse 14, they ridiculed him. When Jesus pointed out what the problem was, rather than accept what he said the problem was, they ridiculed because their hearts were far from obedience. The missing ingredients of these Pharisees who are ridiculing Jesus, the missing ingredient was repentance. Because Jesus says, you know what the law and the prophets say. And the law and the prophets were given, and you have twisted the law and the prophets into some sort of a hypocritical religious mess that allows you to get wealthy off the backs of other people. Because man's justifications ignore God's view of the inner man. Jesus says, I'm more concerned with your heart than I am with your money. And Job, which is considered to be one of the oldest books of the Bible, happened about the same time as Abraham. Job considers God and he says to him, Do you have eyes of flesh? God, do you see the way man sees? And later on, the Lord said to Samuel the priest, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but... The Lord looks on the heart. See, the Pharisees were trying to live wealthy and comfortable with God on the side. And God says, I'm looking at your heart. I see the hypocrisy. I see that your wealth is more important to you than I am. And when I, God, ask you to do something, you would rather change my instruction then change your heart. See, these words from Jesus to the religious leaders is good advice for many preachers today who prey on people then fly in private jets. The words of Psalm 51 ring true for the Old Testament prophets. It rings true for the New Testament Pharisees. The words of Psalm 51 ring true for 21st century preachers. And for all of us who sit in the pews where the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Pharisees wanted to have their wealth and religion too. And Jesus said, I won't put up with your hypocrisy anymore. 
Because verses 16 and 17 tell us that John was calling for repentance. The same old way of doing things isn't good anymore. You can't live your best life now and the be happy attitudes with a little bit of Jesus on the side and call yourself a Christ follower. John comes in verse 16 and begins to say, it's time to repent. It's time to change your heart. You've got to prepare for the coming of the Lord. See, to the Jewish mind, the prophetic voice had gone silent at the end of the Old Testament. But Jesus says here that when John arrives, he's opening up the messianic age with a cry in the wilderness. It's time to repent. It's time to start changing your life to comply with what the word of says. Jesus revisits the message that we saw back in chapter 13, where Jesus says, I'm telling all y'all, you need to repent. Because without a change of heart, Jesus remains on the outside looking in. The brokenness of Psalm 51 has been twisted in our day into some sort of a cultural religion that is 180 degrees opposed to the good news of the kingdom. And so when people today hear the call of the gospel, as John said, repent and get ready for God's way of doing things, there are two responses to the gospel call. Back in chapter 14, we read that there was a great banquet and Jesus sent servants to compel people to come to the banquet. In chapter 15, we saw the intensity and the urgency to seek the lost in three separate parables. And the ESV has a note in the, in the margin attached to the end of verse 16 where it says everyone's trying to get into the kingdom. An alternate reading of that says everyone is forcefully urged into the kingdom. That's the compelling that we've seen in the last few verses. Jesus is saying, do not ignore the call of the gospel. Jesus is saying, I compel you with all that I can to urge you, almost to force you, please come into the kingdom. Repent of your sins, turn from your selfishness, and come to me. The problem is that when people are being urged to repent and accept the gospel... Some choose to change the message just to accommodate their own desires. Well, what Jesus really meant was so that I don't have to change my life in any ways. And this sets up the situation that's addressed in the next two verses. In verses 17 and 18, I think we see the same selfishness But Jesus gives it a different application. For the first 16 verses, Jesus was saying, your selfishness looks like wealth, and God takes the back seat. In verses 17 and 18, he says, you're trying to change the law so that marriage is all about your happiness and not the marriage that God defines. So we have to ask ourselves, according to verse 18, What is marriage? 
or who defines what marriage is. The religious zealots redefined marriage so it was all about a man's happiness. One school of Pharisees that Jesus addressed in Matthew 19 believed that a man could divorce his wife for anything she did that displeased him. Even something as small as a poorly prepared meal. Who wants to live under that pressure? And in that discussion, Jesus points back to the Mosaic law of marriage, which was always defined as one man and one woman. In this passage, husbands and wives, he's and she's, are the only parties mentioned in a marriage. It's clear to me that when Jesus says marriage, he is speaking of an exclusive covenant relationship between a man and a woman. A a pluralistic legal system may allow for unions of other types, but that's not what the Bible calls a marriage. And so Jesus is challenging the Pharisees that wanted to twist marriage into something that was selfish for the man. He says, now wait a sec. It's God who says what a marriage is. And in our society that wants to believe a marriage is any two people living together, Jesus says, wait a sec. It's God who defines what a marriage is. You know, there were very important roles that were played by women. But when Jesus says a marriage is one man and a woman, every time Jesus mentioned marriage, it had to do with one man, one woman. Just as when Jesus mentioned elders or overseers, they were always men. Now, women had valuable contributions, but they were never included in what it meant to be a elder. And there are other unions that our society says, but those other unions are never included in what God says is a marriage. Because it is God who defines these things for us. See, the point of verse 17 is that we cannot rewrite God's word to accommodate our whims. And the point of verse 18 is that marriage between one man and one woman is more important than the desires of any one man. Few things strike closer to our heart than our wealth and our intimacy. And in both of these things, God has spoken. The manager in this parable had perverted the property of the master into something for his own dishonest gain. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had twisted God's blessings into something that only added to their selfish wealth and their happiness. But Jesus calls them and us to faithfully steward the blessings of God for the good of others and to faithfully obey what he has said and to not change it into something that serves our desires. In the Fellowship Hall Sunday School class, we've been looking for the last couple months at the way society is trying to reshape 
our culture, and our churches. And in today's text of Luke chapter 16, we see how religion can be twisted towards wealth and personal happiness. But God is calling us to be faithful stewards, faithful managers. Our final song this morning is a reminder that ancient words continue to call us towards obedience and faith. Stand with me as we listen to and we commit ourselves to obey the 